I'm Susan Branscombe and this is Leading She. You need and I need and we all need a man in the room that's in those sessions to say, yes, and she has that. Yes, and she should be given this chance. We need more opportunities to rise through the ranks. Marianne Morrow, as founder and CEO of Ninth Gear Technologies, has what it takes to succeed. Perspiration, persistence, perseverance, and resilience. She left corporate life and began her reign as a successful entrepreneur. She describes her fascinating fintech business during the first 15 minutes of this podcast. Marianne recommends women step up and ask for more responsibility and insists that her ability to solve big problems by breaking them down into parts has been one of the keys to her success. Marianne is an angel investor and we discuss the inequities around venture capital available for women-owned businesses as investors ask women preventing failure questions while asking men-owned companies about growth. What an inspiring guest Marianne Morrow has been. Today on Leading She, my guest is Marianne Morrow. Welcome, Marianne. Hi, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. I'm so glad to have you here. Let me introduce you uh, to our listeners. Uh, Marianne brings more than 25 years as a corporate veteran in the financial, marketing, and advertising industries to her role as founder and CEO of Ninth Gear Technologies, where she is responsible for leading corporate strategy, scaling the company, and investor relations. Ninth Gear Technology is a B2B business which executes same-day FX or foreign exchange trading and settlement. She is a capital market specialist launching a family of mutual funds and architecting fee-based management platforms for banks, broker-dealers, and insurance firms. Marianne previously served as CEO of Surge XLR, a boutique accelerator she founded that focused on faster paths to monetization. She was also involved in two successful exits and consulted on the custom content and advertising efforts of many financial firms while working at the Wall Street Journal. Marianne is an active angel investor and an expert on distributed ledger technology, which I believe we also call blockchain, uh, ICOS, and cryptocurrency. Marianne was educated at Cornell University with a degree in material science engineering, Lemoyne and Whittier Law School, with continuous learning at Stanford University studying scaling blockchain, valuation modeling, angel investing, and part of the blockchain club. So welcome again, Marianne. Thanks, Susan. Yeah. Well, I have studied and listened to podcasts and I've done my own research and I feel like I understand what your company does, but I thought I would set it up for the listener and sort of simplify it so that they will understand. And then you correct or clarify anything that I say that isn't, isn't uh, right. Sure. Okay. So, um, you know, I have a financial background, but I'm, you know, I some of these things were new to me in the foreign exchange market, the FX market, but here we go. Foreign exchange. Um, this is buying, selling, and exchanging currencies, exchanging, if you can think of it as U.S. dollars for euros or Japanese yen, and it's a global network of financial centers that transact 24 hours a day except for weekends. There is about $6.6 trillion, which account for the foreign trades per day in the world. And for many years, commercial banks were the only source to really do this, and it was a slow process and clunky. 
And the banks liked it that way because of the float, uh, which is, of course, the advantage banks have to holding onto funds for a period of time. Foreign exchange is traded in an over-the-counter market where broker-dealers negotiate directly with another, so there's no central exchange or clearinghouse. And with foreign exchange currency or money for goods, there is settlement risk, meaning that the more time that passes between the trade date and the settlement date, the more risk that things could change with exchange rates, for example. And with banks, that can be two days, so that's an eternity when you're talking about money. There are time zone issues uh, with the various countries throughout the world, geographic factors, which contribute to the trade risk. And uh, your company trades these not by voice or phone calls, which still can be done, but you have something called electronic communication network. So you do this, you take a lot of the risk out of the transaction, you do it quickly, you save you know, clients time and money, you match up a price taker with a market maker, so there's not this two days of waiting period. That's what, that's what you do, right? Am I clarify or correct however you see fit? <laughs> sure. Let me just simplify this a little bit. Okay. So when I first entered the market, it was T plus five, which means it took the trade date plus an additional five business days in order to settle a transaction. Mm -hmm. And by nature of these transactions on a global basis, there is a dislocation between time zones, geographies, currency, and risk. There are 180 currencies on the planet. Mm. And the way that it works is that you trade on one day and then you settle. Now it's been compressed down to T plus two. So you settle it 48 hours later. To me, that is an eternity and it opens up companies to inordinate amount of risk. And you touched on some of those. The largest is settlement risk. I believe settlement risk is unnecessary. And that's when you have to, let's just use US dollars into yen. You have to send your yen on the trade date and then you're going to hope and pray that you get the dollars back. 48 hours later. That's most of the time happens. Sometimes it doesn't. But we've set up this company to track, clear, and settle financial assets, starting with FX in the moment. So we have compressed it from T plus two, 48 hours down to seconds, not days. And that provides operational efficiency. It removes the friction and it also reduces risk, settlement mm -hmm. risk, currency risk counterparty risk. There's many different types of risks that mm -hmm. are involved in these transactions, and we simplify it. Yeah, I get it. Um, here's the th here's the question. One question I had for you. Um, you are B2B, so your clients, uh, many of your clients are banks, right? So if they would like the float and really would prefer this go slowly, why would they utilize your company? Sometimes you need to do it because you have a client that demands it. And so clients just assume that it takes 48 hours. So speaking with treasurers, they say to me, I never thought I could do it in the moment. And if I could do it in the moment, I wouldn't have to tie up my money. And also I could make better business decisions. So if you're doing payroll Next week, a lot of companies pay twice a month. You had best had your FX done this week to ensure that you'll meet that deadline. You can't wait till next week to do that. But with doing it in 
same day, you could. And $6.6 trillion per day goes through technology from the 70s. And that it sometimes it breaks and it gets clogged and mistakes happen. Mm-hmm. And this is a way to do it in the moment. So it ha- provides operational efficiency. Mm-hmm. So we ensure finality of funds for payment, employing liquidity either prior to the trade or at the time of execution. Okay. I think I've got it. Hopefully our listeners have this too. Um, so your your clients are banks, uh, insurance companies. Who are some of your other type clients? Corporates, real okay. money, asset mm-hmm. managers, the buy side. So it, we're focusing on building a platform for corporations, mm-hmm. mid-level, yeah. large corporations, multinational corporations that have businesses in other jurisdictions, they're constantly moving money back and forth. Mm -hmm. And we're allowing them to make those trades happen immediately. Mm -hmm. And I did a little checking and some research on blockchain and distributed ledger technology. And I think I understand it, but why don't you explain that as it relates to what you do? Sure. And I'm going to go back a little bit because when Satoshi Nakamoto wrote his white paper in 2008, it was very much game-changing, but not game-changing in corporate America or in many of the large banks. It was game-changing mostly amongst people that thought that they could overrule monetary authority. So when I heard about it in 2009, I thought that the concept was interesting about moving money without a intermediary. They call it a trustless transaction, which sounds scary, but it means that you don't need a third party intermediary, an escrow type of agent in order to have business conducted between two parties that don't know each other. So interesting, but could it be applied to finance or corporate America. And I just packed it away because I thought that overthrowing monetary authority was not the way to make that happen. So when I re-examined it, somebody explained it to me in a different way. And just the light bulb just switched on in my head because I said, if I could harness this technology and that we could solve the double spend problem, which means that if I send money to you, I wouldn't be sending money to other people and and using that money that I've already sent to you again and again. So if we could solve that problem and I can have one ledger that's immutable for many people to, to look at, we could fundamentally fix many of the issues, at least in in my world of finance and institutional finance. And I said, mm-hmm. we have to look at this and use it. But when I went to some of the institutions and when I went to some of those institutions in 2017, and I asked over a hundred institutions, two questions, what are you doing with blockchain? And what are you doing with cryptocurrency? Everybody except Fidelity laughed at me. Fidelity said, you could use cryptocurrency in our cafeteria and buy pizza. Would have been a very expensive pizza in today's world, <laughs> but uh, in today's dollars. However, you could you could do that. Everybody else laughed at me. They're not laughing anymore. There is institutional awareness of distributed ledger technology. You have former regulators like Jay Clayton that used to run the SEC or Gary Gensler that's now running the SEC. He taught a class in um, an MIT on that. So you do have 
institutional adoption of it. Yeah, that's um, that's fascinating. Um, so it's a fintech company. We say fintech. It, yours is a fintech company. How many companies are you like yours? How many companies do what you're what you're doing? It's very hard to say how okay. many companies because a lot of a lot of companies are on stealth mode, and the pace at which we do business and companies can form is increasingly is speeding up every single day. So a new player could come in at any moment and and take a lion's share. So sometimes first guy through the door gets shot, but I know that what we are doing is important. There are other folks that are in our space, but have a different angle of attack. I think that our angle of attack is superior because we fix the underlying problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you in this business cycle, you know, entry, you have few players and then more players come in and then it becomes more competitive. So what stage is this industry in? We are at the very beginning, very beginning. Of, of this digital technology. Yeah, We can digitize anything to make it go through the system at this point. It yeah. is possible. Is there adoption of it in our institutions willing to embrace it? That is a very different question. Mm -hmm. People are still questioning every piece in the cycle. When you go into corporate America and say, I am doing something on the internet or I'm doing it in the cloud, there were still questions. People are like, is it safe to be in the cloud? Like, how will that happen? Will other people have my data? We don't ask those types of questions as much anymore, but I'm having to explain each and every piece of what it, we do and explain a relational database in a different format because blockchain is a database type structure mm -hmm. in, in with different protocols. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. Got it. Um, well, let's dive into some, in the spirit of leading she and women and so forth. Um, you have, uh, you have cited the statistics. I've heard these statistics before that women uh, as in their startup, you know, business mode uh, get less than 2% of venture capital funds, VC funds for their business businesses, startups. And you've had firsthand experience with that starting your company um, and that you had to fight to get investors and you're still doing that. So talk about that. And then, and then I want to talk about the why of this, what, what you think, and then I've got my own theories about why. <laughs> So talk about uh, the VC funds and how women just don't get get as much and when how what your experience has been. Sure, there's a lot to unpack in that question, Susan. Yeah. So let's start at the very beginning. Women still receive less than 2% of funding, which is an amazing statistic. I did not realize that when I started this business. It is the number one problem that I face is that I need to put more gas in the tank every single day. And I know that our company has a concrete solution. We were cited in a report from the Bank for International Settlement in their Capital Payments and Market Infrastructures Consultative Report as one of 16 companies that were in there, one of 11 that were a concrete solution. And if you look at those competitors that we have in this space, 
every one of them have received double digit funding. We are just about to go over $6 million in funding from the inception. Every one of those checks was written either by someone by myself, someone on my team, or somebody that we know. It's We've had just a couple of checks come in from people that know somebody else that is involved with our company, from one of our advisors to another investor. But every one of them is a single individual writing a check. So we have not been screened favorably by the VCs. So there's a couple of things that happen. One, we are tackling a very complicated subject in capital markets, which is somewhat esoteric and arcane to understand. That's part one. Part two, we use new technology and we're not a crypto maximalist. We are not a pure blockchain play. We use distributed ledger technology, but we're not moving anything in and out of cryptocurrency because that adds more volatility and risk and we're removing risk. So that's the second item. And the third is that I was born a female and I'm not changing my gender <laughs> anytime soon. So th- that that is the third item. And that is the biggest item we receive when we do go to pitch we receive every prevention question and there has been a a big study there is a ted talk and harvard business school report on prevention questions and it's data kanzi k a n z e that did that study and okay. it's the prevention questions if you're in front of an audience and you receive prevention 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 questions what does the rest of the audience think about? I've only been asked twice what my hopes and dreams are for this company Yeah. in the entire five years that I've been doing this. Yeah. Most of the time I receive questions like, do you know how to sell into a bank? That's my favorite of mm. all of them. It was in a, yeah. in, in a big, huge auditorium, 20 people around this big conference room table. And Every one of them was a guy, and that was the question that I received. Mm-hmm. So I do know how to sell into a bank. I am very gifted in that. And we can we we are speaking at the top of the pyramid yeah. for financial institutions. But that's that's one of the items. The second thing that that happens with VCs is that most of the time I'm screened by a very young individual. They've gone to a great school, a great pedigree, Ivy League education. A couple years out of school, maybe an internship with a large financial institutions, and they are now a VC. And they put that on their business card and they talk like they're a VC. And they've never hired or fired anybody. They don't understand settlement. I unpack it in in a very uh, novel way and I explain it like they're going into a bar and and they're ordering a beverage and the bartender says, give me your your cash or your credit card. They give you your cash. They have to have that on the bar and then they'll get their beer. They do their credit card. They'll, um, They'll be able to receive that 24 hours or 48 hours later. And that just is a long time. You would never do that if you're going into yeah. a bar. And so, um, so these are young, these are, these are young people right out of school and they're considering you. So let's go back to the prevention yeah. question. What is the prevention, yeah. the prevention of failure? Like if we invest, it doesn't work. Is that what they're, you're talking about? Sure. It's all about 
you know, how hard is this? And, and how many people have to say yes in order to do this? And what is your background in this? And why do you think that you are able to do this? They don't ever read the resume or uh, curriculum vitae. They just assume as a female that you don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. And, right. or when you unpack it, they, because there's a credit component to these transactions, they just don't think that that's correct. They watch money move in a Venmo type setting. I can send money to you right now on Venmo. Right. You could get it. You'll hear the ka-ching. But if you go to take that out, you cannot transfer that to your from to your financial institution so you can go get cash out unless you pay 2%. Yes, that's right. And they they don't think about that. Right? Yeah, they right. think only about the fact that I can send money immediately. Well, you could send money immediately. Or you could walk into your bank today and say, I'm going to go on a, a shopping trip to Paris and I would like some euros. Your bank, if you're a good customer, will send that, will hand that over to you across the counter. But if you go in and say, I need to buy a company and I need to, to wire a hundred billion dollars, they're not going to do that right away. That takes 48 hours mm -hmm. plus in yeah. order to do that. And you may also want to stagger it. So you don't tip the market off that you're amassing euros. Yeah. So sometimes there, there's different there's different ways to do it and it doesn't happen immediately. Yeah. I mean, back to, back to this VC business i mean here's what i think and and you know it's not like this is the only place we see gender bias right i mean i think there is a simmering uh and silicon valley is not the exception it's not talked about it's this sort of informal understanding that you know that women don't maybe necessarily understand what they're talking about when it comes to finance now that is a broad brush statement not everybody thinks that but it's safer, better to invest in these companies that guys own. And, you know, what are our priorities? Does she have children? All of those things are being considered, but nobody talks about them, right? They do not. And there was a situation that happened a couple of weeks ago out here where Andreessen Horowitz wrote a $350 million check to Adam Newman, who started WeWork. There's a documentary called We Crashed uh, on Apple TV about him where he very much went to an I to do his IPO and there were many missteps. So there was not a lot of adult supervision on that transaction. Mm. And he he failed and failed brilliantly. Everybody learned about it. But what happened with that? He was given not only a second chance, but a third chance because there was a $70 million check that Andreessen wrote to him for a crypto company that failed several months ago. And what happened again? He got a $350 million check to go out and start a, a, a different company in the uh, real estate area. That doesn't happen to women. And, and that's been my experience in my career. If I make a mistake, I don't often get another chance. The guy's like, oh, okay, bro, I know you've got, you know, this or that, whatever. And they're given chance after chance after chance, right? It, it makes me so angry yeah. about the fact that that was the single largest check that was ever written in the BC world. And it was, it was written to someone who has failed 
miserably yeah. multiple times. So women do not receive those chances. Right. My, I said a lot of stuff about that on Twitter and LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Why not write an equal, uh, check to a female split it up and write Write a bunch of checks, checks. you know, a hundred, $3.5 million check, move the needle because women return 63% more ROI. So Nisa Amels uh, wrote a book called WTF Women, you know, WTF is happening, Women Tech Founders. And that's a great book. And in that book, it cites first round capital did a study, it was in 2015. So it's a little dated, but it looked at many different founders, and it showed that women serve up 63% more ROI. That is Mm. a meaningful number. So investing in women is a really good idea. And there's the financial backing on that with the data. So you have been successful in raising money from, you know, maybe call it friends and families, people writing checks, so maybe not the VC market. Um, So what are, what are these, uh, these investors looking at in terms of key performance indicators for your company? They're looking at the racehorse. They're looking at me. They're looking at the team that we've assembled. My superpower is finding amazing talent and they're based in three different categories, capital markets, former regulators, and technologists that have incredible experience. So weaving that together is why people are investing. They're investing in the team. Okay. I understand that. Um, you have a small company. I had a small company about the same size. Um, and you say that you hire happy, smart people that get things done, which I love that. Um, why is that important? And how do you how do you do that? So when I hire people, we do a lot of screening. We do a lot of investigations, a lot of conversations with cross-functional people. So it's not just one person that brings them in. No matter what I do at this stage, it's like a box of chocolates. We want to get the nuts out as fast as possible. People want to work with happy individuals. Happy, smart people are are what we want to work with every single day. You don't want to walk in and get that want rose. That's just, it's a very uh, soul- it's negativity, crushing. toxicity. Yeah, you don't yeah. want it. You can't. Yeah. You can't afford and, it. Right. And I don't. I want to leave my corporate, you know, bitch cape back in corporate America. <laughs> like I, it just is. Like I can pull that out if I need to, but to have to manage somebody out is really a, a lot of effort. So I want to ensure that we have happy, smart people that can really move the needle. And so. Sometimes people are brittle. Some people have had amazing careers, but they don't really understand how to work in a startup. So we want to get the nuts out right away. We want to ensure that we have good teamwork. And it's hard working in a distributed environment. I'm in California. Most of my team is on the East Coast. In fact, I'm the only one out here along with the board and with all our attorneys are out here. I love being out here in Silicon Valley. The weather is amazing. Yeah. And also the thought process of how to innovate and form a company. I would never have started this company had it not been for my experiences here in Silicon Valley. Yeah. But starting a company with a distributed team is tough. We have 
off sites several times a year, get together. I travel to the East Coast quite a bit. I was just there for three weeks, working with the team, ensuring that we are in lockstep. There are some people on the East Coast that think I live with them because I'm just always on the phone with them and it works out well. People are happier when they live and work where they want. Yeah. You mentioned something about the corporate life and you're like me. I worked in uh, corporations, institutions for the first, say, 13 years of my career. And I see you as really a consummate entrepreneur, really not a corporate executive. And I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole there. Um, I always did well, got all the bonuses, I got good reviews, but I was often told, uh, Susan, take no for an answer. You've got to learn to take no for an answer. So I thought, well, maybe I should be an entrepreneur and run my own business and and get paid for not taking no for an answer. So, um, But I see you as a driven entrepreneur. What would you say about your time in corporations versus your time as an entrepreneur? I also was told that I expect too much. So in corporate America, I would always accept the jobs in order for me to move forward and move up the ranks. I was always known as the person that would take the hairy, ugly problems and solve them. That was just what I was known for. And I do not take no for an answer. I'm pleasantly persistent and I can outwork anybody. So I'm up really early. We talked about that. My alarm Mm -hmm. goes off at 4.30 every day. I try not to send emails or Slack messages out too early. My team has said, please don't do that to us. So I've been criticized for that one. Yeah, Susan's up here, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They know that I'm up early. Yeah. So, and I'm up early and working before anybody gets up. But I see that taking something that needs to be done and solving it is a skill set because it's not just the idea, it's the idea plus the execution. And the execution is where all of the work happens. It's, yeah, we should do that, or you should do that. That's easy for somebody to say. Yes, It's it's all the perspiration and persistence and perseverance and resilience because things don't always go right the first time. No. We've had to brush ourselves off multiple times, but we just get back up and yeah. start, the, start a new day get it going. That is the biggest thing to being an entrepreneur. There are things that will come up that you don't expect, things that is, you know, are often outside of your control and you you are the buck stops there. You have got to find a way to deal with it. And I think you are creative, resourceful. Um here's a problem, I can fix it. I mean, that's that's how I'm wired. Mm-hmm. You know. And it's also taking something that's really big and chunking it out putting it into a color-coded spreadsheet, which I've always loved. And just how do we attack this? What is the best way to do it? Can we keep going on this? How many times have we been told no? If you've been told no a thousand times, that's okay. It's maybe the thousand and and one or thousand and Mm -hmm. second time that that makes a difference, asking in a different way, asking a different person. So it, it just, you just need to keep going and trying. Yeah, fantastic. Um, You know, at this stage of your career, um, what do you think the biggest lessons you've learned? What would you wish you could have told your 25-year-old self uh, to prepare her for what's to come? What, what, uh, What have you learned? I've learned to take more risks, and that is what I wish I did earlier, because 
when you are scared and you're scared to fail, you're never going to succeed. And you are matrixed and in this one little cycle, but you don't know what is outside the box. So it's okay to play outside your comfort zone. I always am outside my comfort zone. And I am not by definition an extrovert. People look at me and say, wow, you talk to everybody. And I push myself to do that, to push myself to go to go to events mm-hmm. by myself and, and talk to everyone because that's how I learn is by communicating. What do you think about this idea? Tell me your thoughts on that. Can I take those ideas and, and package them up? I don't listen to all of them. I, I throw out some, but it allows me to reset, replay, rethink, and, and go back out and look at things differently. So mm-hmm. I would just take more risks. I, I in my twenties and thirties, and even into my forties, I don't think I took as many risks as, mm-hmm. as I could have. And and now is the time to to play it. Yeah, play no, it I, I agree with you. And and frankly, back then, you know, the, it, there I think there was more at stake if we failed uh, than there is now. Uh, mm-hmm. But I wish I'd taken more risks too. And I am also an introvert. I think some people would be surprised to hear that. And I am what they call. I finally have a name for this. I'm an outgoing introvert. I can I can be a head type, you know, I want to know all the facts, the analysis, you know, and I can be pretty introverted. I have trouble sometimes going into a room with a lot of people and work in the room, um, but I overcome it, you know, by being outgoing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And when you play not to lose, you're ruining any shot that you have at winning. And when you play small, you lose. When you play not to win, you lose. So many people operate from a place of fear rather than a place of abundance and you lose. So Mm -hmm. we have to use this power that we've learned from all of this experience. And so I'm playing to win. I'm unapologetically ambitious and I'm playing to win. Good for you. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm impressed with that. And I don't want to categorize gender here, but a lot of women are afraid to fail. They have the idea, they they know they can do it, uh, but they, they just cannot get over the fear. For me, the fear I found, I had to embrace it, uh, allow it to drive me, um, and use it to succeed. And as much as I could, not in a negative way, I to try to stay positive. But uh, I would tell women that if you're thinking about a business, you know, if, you, if you're tired of the corporate life, you know, just go out and do it. So what if you fail? I mean, just give it a try. You will get the kind of adrenaline juice that you've never gotten before, right? I mean, it's, it's cool. It, it is cool. It's, it's cool. Yeah. It is cool. Yeah. Um, where do you think we are as women having real equality in business. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm, you know, a lot older than you or older than you, but I mean, in, in your career, I mean, wh- what, are, where are we with uh, equality in the workplace, um, in the world? Um, do you have hope? I have hope for the next generation of children that are being born now. Oh. I don't think it will be solved in my lifetime because I still have the old boys network that I am facing every single day. Mm -hmm. There is lip service that I receive, but behind the scenes, I hear the rumblings and we need it to change full stop. 
and you see a very different double standard. I'm sometimes afraid to do things now in public. Sana, the prime minister of Finland, just had this horrendous thing happen where she was dancing at a party and they made her take a drug test. I mean, like, what's up with that? Right. So it's a very different double standard. What we need to change this is allyship from men. We need to have their backing 100%. And I heard this from Lori Heinel, who is the chief investment officer of State Street Global Advisors, SSGA, owned by State Street Bank. Mm -hmm. And she was talking on the International Day for Women, and she said, women have big butts. And what that means is not a a physical thing, but it's (laughs) behind the scenes, women are discussed and there's always somebody that says, but blah, blah, blah. Yes. You need, and I need, and we all need a man in the room that's in those sessions to say, yes, and she has that. Yes. And she should be given this chance. We need more opportunities to rise through the ranks. There are more women that are applying for colleges than men. Statistically, huge amounts. BC received 75% of their applicants as female in the last cycle. Mm -hmm. 75%. How do they normalize that? Do they just go to 50-50? Because that's what society says to do. We're graduating more women, but women are not moving through the ranks. So women Mm -hmm. need to receive more chances to allow them to try new roles. Women sometimes don't apply for things unless they know they have every one of those boxes checked. Men men say, oh, I could do that. So we need to fundamentally shape young girls into saying, yes, I think that I can do this and I want to try. Yeah, but but Show it doesn't them how to raise their hand. Like you say that raise your hand, lean in as Cheryl Sandberg says, but that's only half the story. We can volunteer, we can speak up, we can say, "Look, I want this, I want this." But what you're saying is the truth, and that is that we need men as advocates, we need them as sponsors, and when they have their little secret handshake and bro culture going on around the table when they're talking about her, and her promotability, it has to be somebody there, at least one of them, two of them that say, you know what, let's just give her a chance. It's a jump ball between these two men or this this man and this woman. Let's give her a chance, you know. Um, and that's what we face. I mean, we can raise our hands all we want. I did it for years and still missed opportunities that were given to men because of the system, mm-hmm. you know. In Silicon Valley, I had somebody approach me that said, how could you possibly start a business like this? You don't have that experience. They did not know me. They did not know my experience. And yet they said, how could you possibly think that you are capable of doing this? I'm talking to some of the largest corporations and largest companies on Wall Street. And Yes, it is possible. Yes, it is possible for women to have these ideas and believe that they can and will succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the assumption. Yeah, that's the, those are the preconceived notions about what we know, how good we are, that are often false. And, 
you know, they're just kind of like, you couldn't possibly be doing this. Look, don't you worry your pretty little head about this. We'll take care of it. You know, we'll, you know, no, I want to play. You know, I want to do this too. Um, it's been said that women can have an inner glass ceiling. Um, and I think I would say that I've had an inner glass ceiling. Like, can I really do it? Is my self-esteem strong enough? Is my confidence, am I as good as this other person, guy, whatever? Um, did you ever have an inner glass ceiling? And what did you tell yourself or how did you handle it? I don't have an inner glass ceiling. I never <laughs> have thought that. I am. I wake up every day unapologetically ambitious. It's just in my <laughs> DNA. I don't know why, but it is. It's cool. And and I was adopted, and my family will tell you that I am very different for the rest of my family. I'm always the one that is the organizer, the, always the one that's coming up with the with the ideas of what we should do, how we should do it, and I. There are times when I may say, hmm, how am I going to handle that? But I don't get nervous. I am just, how do we chunk it out? How do we make it happen? And let's let's do it because if I know that we can do it. And if somebody else, you know, if we don't do it, somebody else may. And now is our time to make this happen. And so I, I wake up every day energized thinking of the possibilities. We will forever change the world of finance. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, it's really neat. I'm just excited for you. Yeah. Um, you have said that you like type A people and that I think that's why you and I get along so well and we connect. Uh, and uh, kindred spirits, I am type A. Uh, and that you have softened over the years. I heard that on a podcast. And I have a two-part question. Why do you like type A people? And how have you softened? over the years. I like type A people because we get stuff done. Yes. And we just make it happen. There is no, hmm, should we do it? Let's just go for it. Swing from the chandeliers. Now is the time to make that happen. I have softened over the years. When I was in corporate America, I had a very high standard and I held people accountable, maybe a little too much. Uh, now, especially, we're in the process of going for Series A. We need to, things happen. I, I brush people off a little more gently than I used to. So it's over the years, I've, I've softened a bit. Yeah. I don't think you would have liked me. 15 years ago. You may not have liked me either. I was, <laughs> it was tough. And, you know, I had employees, I had people that just like, oh, no, Susan, yeah, she just, you know, she, you know, she's very aggressive. She's very assertive. You know, I was just speaking the truth, you know, and I was just, like you say, holding people accountable. But in corporations, you can be pretty mediocre and still get paid and get promotions and things. And I, that's, a part I just couldn't take anymore. I couldn't take mediocre people being promoted and getting credit for things and pretty much equally with me when I was working harder and doing better. So, yeah, they call it quietly quitting now. I mean, yeah. that's been around forever. And those are the people you to want to weed out of the organization. Yeah. There's always some of those at every company at which there you are, are a part. Yeah. And yeah. You need to clean them out. I, I agree. Um, but I have softened two of the, I, I've mellowed out. And uh, there, are, there are good ways to say things uh, which are kind, you know, and uh, 
and still speak the truth, you know, and still hold people accountable and not be. But, you know, we do. We have to soften over the years if we want to get get things done through people, right? It's um, all the way you word it. It's yeah, all the approach yeah. of how you say it. Yeah. Um, well, as we wrap up here a little bit, a couple more questions. What's the, uh, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? When there is a project that needs to be done, raise your hand. Raise your hand, try it out, whether you have a skill set or not, raise your hand, ask for more responsibility. Right. And if what you don't know, you can find out. I mean, how easy is it to get on? I mean, I was, you know, Googling FX, Foreign Exchange, Robinhood, all that stuff today. I can find anything. You can find anything out how to do things. And, and if you're a visual learner like I am, go on YouTube and you can find out, right? But take the risk is the idea. Y you can lay track as you go in, in the instance of a train. Lay track as you go. Just, just jump. There's water in the pool, as somebody told me. It, we've come a long way from the card catalog. I was friendly with the card catalog looking things up back oh, yeah. in the day. Al Gore's internet makes it so much easier to find information. <laughs> yeah. The Dewey Decimal System in the library. I mean, it's been a lot of time I'm there. a big library fan. Big library I love fan. library. I love books. Love libraries. Uh, so, uh, As well as we wrap up here, let me um, ask you. You have said in this podcast, and I've heard you say on others, that uh, you did not get the question, what are your hopes and dreams for this company? So uh, it's a two-part question. Why don't you think you got that question? And then secondly, what are your hopes and dreams for this company? I don't receive that question because women are never asked their hopes and dreams. They just receive the prevention question. So yep. that's part of it. Right. My hopes and dreams for this company is to create a long-term sustainable business that has multiple verticals. We're starting with foreign exchange. We're moving into transactive energy, but there are many other financial assets that we can tackle and we will make finance work and operate with less risk the way it should work. Yeah. It's exciting. I mean, it just from some of the things I heard on the podcast, uh, that I, the ones I listened to, it sounds like with the Series A and all, you are kind of coming to this, as Malcolm Gladwell says, the tipping point. You've got a tipping point coming. Am I right? We are ready for that tipping point. I have people that I'm warming up to bring into this institution and into this company, and they are amazing. And so I have about 15 people that I'm ready to hire when we receive the Series A, and that will leapfrog us into yeah. market. It's exciting. Marianne, thanks. It's been great. I've just loved to get to know you, and I'm glad we were introduced. And um, it's been a great uh, podcast. Some really good, uh, good exchange about what you know the truth about uh, biases. Susan, thank you for providing this forum. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders. 